I'd like to read a couple of verses from Jeremiah. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Father, we thank you that we live in a day and an age when the fulfillment of this prophecy can seem very close to us. Lord, we look forward to your return. We pray that it might be soon. Father, we need your wisdom and your strength as we face the turn of the year, of the century, of the millennium. And we pray, Father, that your great spirit will be poured out upon your people in these days, that we individually will receive from you the outpouring of your spirit, that we might live in accordance with your divine plan. We are weak, Father, but you are strong. We're so thankful that as we come to you today, that your spirit will be our teacher and our guide, that you not only bless our fellowship, but you bless our study and our prayer. And we ask, Lord, that your name will be proclaimed faithfully uh, throughout this city and country and around the world today, and that many, many will be drawn to Jesus Christ. Father, we just think of the millions out there who have no idea of who you are and who need you desperately and pray that they will hear and will be drawn. We just commit this day to you now, in this hour, in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll turn to the ninth chapter of the book of Judges. I'd like to read beginning with verse 30. Judges 9.30 And when Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger burned. And he sent messengers to Abimelech deceitfully, that means uh, under cover, <laughs> secretly, saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem. And behold, they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore arise by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in the field, lie in wait in the field. And it shall come about in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And behold, when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you shall do to them whatever you can. So Abimelech and all the people who are with him arose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. Now Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the city gate. And Abimelech and the people who were with him arose from the ambush. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look! People are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, You're seeing the shadow of the mountains as if they were men. And Gael spoke again and said, Behold, people are coming down from the highest part of the land. And one company comes by the way of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your boasting now? With which you said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Is this not the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. So Gael went out before the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech remained at Arumah, but Zebul drove out Gael and his relatives 
so that they could not remain in Shechem. We'll be looking at a very interesting and strange story, this ninth chapter of Judges, where we have this man, Abimelech, who is the son of Gideon by a concubine, who has chosen to try to make himself king, something which his father had refused to do on behalf of himself and of all his sons. But in order to make this happen, he, of course, eliminates all his rivals, which are his 70 brothers, or half-brothers, actually, and has himself proclaimed a king here in Shechem because he was a, a Shechemite. Three years have passed since that happened, and into the city of Shechem has come this man, Gael. And Gael has challenged Abimelech's authority. The people have become a little disaffected with Abimelech by this time uh, for reasons that Scripture do not explain, but I think the reasons would be that he was a capricious ruler, probably, a heavy-handed ruler, absentee ruler, probably, a good part of the time. And as a result, uh, this, this division broke out between Abimelech and the people who had originally anointed him as king. And so the word comes from Zebul. Now, Zebul is um, Abimelech's locally appointed governor. He's the, his representative in the city of Shechem. And when he hears that this man Gale and his uh, bag, <laughs> his band of uh, freebooters has moved into town, he sends Abimelech word that there is an uprising in the making here against Abimelech. So Abimelech comes, as we read in that, uh, those verses there from 30 to 33, Abimelech comes as his local governor, Zebul had encouraged him to, and to come under the cover of darkness and to lay a trap outside the city. So he's come with four companies of men. We don't know how many are in a company. Uh, They probably wasn't a large number of people, but probably had a few hundred men with him. And he placed them probably on the slopes of Gerizim and Ebal. Again, trying to remember the scene, if you can. Um, Shechem is located just at the west, I'm sorry, the east entrance into the, the valley between Ebal and Gerizim, which rise to the north and to the south. And you go through that narrow pass and you're over, you get over to the coastal plain eventually. So the men were probably put onto the slopes of the mountain so that they could come rushing down at the gate of Shechem at the appointed hour. So shortly after sunrise, this is when this event occurs. The sun has just arisen. And Zebul probably used some kind of a ruse to get Gale to come to the gate entrance of the gate to the city. And... Abimelech was watching. Now, they didn't have binoculars in those days, so you just had to have good eyes. There they are. There's some people standing in the gate down there. And Abimelech ordered the ambush to be launched. What's interesting is Gale. He's standing there talking to Zebul, and suddenly he looks towards the hill, and he goes, boy, it looks like there's some people running down that mountain towards the city here. And he mentions this to Zebul, and Zebul's, ah, no. It's early in the morning. You see the cl- uh, shadows are deep across the mountain because the sun has just arisen, and, and there are mists up there, and what you really are seeing is, is shadow. Well, <laughs> Gail says, I, I didn't think my eyes were that bad, so he stopped and looked a little longer, you know, and finally he said, there are people coming down this mountain, and they are running straight at us. What's interesting in this passage is, that he says that they are coming from the navel or down the navel of the land. And the only thing we can interpret from this is probably down the slopes of Mount Gerizim. It's more or less central in the land. Or it could have been through the the valley there between the two mountains. But whatever the case, they're coming down towards the city of Shechem. And then it says they're coming by the way of the diviner's oak. Well, 
This is never mentioned anytime else in Scripture, this diviner's oak, whatever, whatever this might mean. So there's no way of knowing exactly the location, except probably it was to the west of the city of Shechem. There are some who think that it refers to the oak of Marah, which is where Abraham came originally when he first entered the land and built an altar and made a sacrifice unto the Lord. But that was, of course, half a millennium or more, better part of a millennium uh, before the time that we're talking about here. Well, Zebul finally decides there's no use in pretending like I don't see anything here. And so what he does is turn right to Gale. He says, all right, you've bragged about how you could deal with Abimelech. Uh, show it. <laughs> Let's see what you can do. And so Gale called his gang together and they went out to face Abimelech. I don't think Gale's forces were a match for Abimelech's. I think he was outnumbered. And as a result, he suffered many losses and he was driven back into the city by Abimelech's force. That's what the scripture tells us here. And then what happens next is very interesting. Abimelech decides, well, I, I've done what I need to do. I'm going back to Aruma, which is about six miles away, to rest, I guess. And so he went back there and, and, and he allowed his local governor, Zebul, to deal with, with Gale and to, and to kind of mop up and finish the operation. And the scripture tells us that Zebul drove Gale and his forces out of Shechem. Now, obviously, Zebul didn't do it all by himself. <laughs> Possibly some of the company stayed with him or others decided in Shechem we'd better be allied to uh, Abimelech at this moment, whatever the case might be. Uh, Gale and his forces were driven out of Shechem. Now, when you read a passage like this and, and you look at the ninth chapter of the book of Judges, you could say, where's, where's God in all of this? <laughs> We've read all these verses about one evil man challenging another evil man. You know? You got Gale, you got Abimelech, they're both violent men, uh, they're not followers of God. So, where, what's the point? What's the point of this passage of Scripture? I really think that the point of this passage of Scripture is that it is another illustration of the divine proclamation which we read from one of Scripture to the other that what we sow, we reap. What we sow, we reap. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. In Proverbs 22, we read this, He who sows iniquity will reap vanity. We see that in this life in this country, don't we? Total vanity. People who just give themselves over to things that have no point, no purpose, no, no end, no focus. It's just we're living in a country full of vanity. To me, you, you just think about, for example, all of this um, hype and to do about, what is it, Pokemon? Uh, you know, vanity, just, just foolishness that, that overwhelms us. Every Christmas, it's some other thing. You know, what was it, Furbies one time, and it was something else another time. I mean, the whole focus is on things that are totally vain and have no value and no point. When he was speaking of spiritual rebels, Hosea wrote these words, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The spiritual law of sowing and reaping is most clearly explained to us in Galatians chapter 6. I'd like to read a few verses from Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 7, Galatians 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. 
For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We live in a world where God is mocked all the time. But the scripture, as we read it here, says, God is not mocked. Which means, of course, they will reap what they have sown. This country will weep, reap what it has sown, unless God turns it around and brings a mighty revival to our land. We were listening the other night to um, uh, just a few little excerpts that uh, were from past programs that Larry King had uh, you know, on television. And one of them was a little excerpt from Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter was saying how he thought the 21st century was going to be a really great century and that good things were really going to happen and uh, you know, very positive and upbeat, which is, you know, it's, it's good to be positive and upbeat. But I think that will be true only if we see the hand of God move in this country in a mighty way because we are on a very slippery slope here. The whole ninth chapter of the book of Judges demonstrates the inevitability of the operation of this law in the case of Gale and the case of Abimelech. And we're going to see as we move a little bit further along, Abimelech pays with his life. And I'm sure Gale did too. Not in this moment, uh, but probably not too far down the line. He would do that. So let's read on at verse 42 in uh, Judges 9. Now it came about the next day that the people went out into the field, and it was told Abimelech. So he took his people and divided them into three companies and lay in wait in the field. When he looked and saw the people coming out from the city, he arose against them and slew them. Then Abimelech and the company who was with him dashed forward and stood in the entrance of the city gate. And the other two companies then dashed against all who were in the field and slew them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. And he captured the city and killed the people who were in it. Then he razed the city and sowed it with salt. <laughs> Talk about reaping, huh? Gale was simply a catalyst. The spirit of rebellion was already in the city and amongst the people. He just simply triggered it. What is very sad for Abimelech was that Shechem was his, was his primary base of support. They're the ones who originally anointed him king. He was a Shechemite. But he was very angered. Now remember, you go all the way back uh, to the previous ver uh, chapter. Actually, it was the beginning of the ninth chapter. talks about the Lord sending an evil spirit uh, to, to be between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. Yes, Gale and his men are gone. But the very fact that these very people had entertained him, had decided, yes, we're going to join him, even though apparently most of them didn't go out and fight along with his forces in the field against Abimelech. They were a little bit uh, hesitant to do that when they saw how many men Abimelech had and how few men Gale had. But they had cooperated with him. They had entertained rebellion against him. And therefore, Abimelech had in his mind revenge. Back about 336 years before Christ, a man by the name of Philip of Macedon had captured Greece and put it under his authority. 
And he had plans to take an army over into Persia to the east and uh, conquer there, but his, one of his generals killed him because they didn't think that was a good idea. They assassinated him. And, and so in his place, there arose his uh, 20-year-old son, whose name was Alexander. Alexander, when he came into power, the Greeks thought, aha, now's our opportunity. We've got this young kid, and he's taking over from his strong and powerful military father. And so we will revolt against Alexander, get these Macedonians out of Greece. Well, Alexander led an army to the city of Thebes, which was the primary motivator behind this revolt. And he not only killed the army of the Thebeans, he flattened the city of Thebes. The point was to warn all others that revolt against me will result in this. And that is the point here. That's exactly the point that is being made here. He is going to get revenge against the city of Shechem, and he's going to teach, these, teach all the people in the surrounding countryside who are under his authority, you don't rebel against me, because if you do, this is what will happen to you. So the very next day, after Gale had been ran out of town, Abimelech set an ambush around the city. And what's interesting is that the people of Shechem go out into the fields as if nothing had happened the day before at all. As if there hadn't been a battle out there, as if Abimelech hadn't been forced to come and deal with a rebel in their midst. So they go out to plant or harvest. We don't, we don't know exactly what they were going to do at this particular time, but they're out to work in the fields. Abimelech had, had put his men out where they couldn't be seen, probably just beyond the edge of the fields. And he had set a trap with what we're told is three companies of men. When it appeared that all of the workers were outside the safe environs of the city itself, you know, the city has walls around it, has a gate. So all these guys are out in the field where they have no protection. Now, did they go out in the fields wearing a weapon? We don't know. It, it doesn't say. But when the right moment appeared and they were all clear and it looked like nobody else was coming out, he launched his men into action. And we're told that Abimelech himself led one of the companies to capture the city gate so those in the field couldn't get back into the city. And the other two companies then just methodically went through the fields, chased down and killed all the men who were out in the fields around the city. Remember, these are agricultural towns. And the fields were scattered out, probably radiating out almost like the spokes of a wheel around the city of Shechem. And so uh, they worked in the fields in the day and went back into the safety of the city at uh, night to live. Well, the forces of Abimelech after killing all of the men into the field, they went into the city and they went from door to door of the houses, exterminating the population. I mean, this was Abimelech's revenge. This was his anger. This was his wrath. He was going to wipe out the entire population. And then we're told in this passage that he flattened the city and then he sowed it with salt. <laughs> the purpose, of course, of putting salt on the ground is that not even weeds could grow there let alone anything else. It's throughout history, this, this happens many times in history, and it, it's always the exclamation point, boom, you guys are done. <laughs> it's over with. This is how I deal with somebody who rebels against me. In the year 146 BC, the city of Carthage had been coming to the end of a three-year siege. The Romans had decided that Carthage should not survive because Carthage was a major financial rival to Rome. Carthage was located in North Africa, right near uh, in the northern part of what is the uh, country of Tunisia today. 
the, the city of Carthage had been for hundreds of years the most powerful city in the whole western Mediterranean. The Greeks were the major traders in the eastern Mediterranean and the, Roman, uh, the Carthaginians were the major traders in the western Mediterranean. Carthage was established by the people of Tyre and Sidon from scripture, the Phoenicians. And the Romans, after three years of siege, the city surrendered, the Romans captured the city, they sold the entire population into slavery, they flattened the city, and they sowed it with salt, the whole site. Now, we're not talking about a Shechem here. Now, Shechem is probably a few acres, you know, maybe a dozen or two dozen acres in size. The city of Carthage was a city of 500,000 people, big city, mighty walls. And they flattened the whole city. And the point was to underscore Roman hatred of this city that had been a pain in the side of Rome for 120 years and with whom the Romans had fought two very bloody wars. So it's underscored it. Carthage is gone. Carthage is no more. Today, uh, aerial photographs show us sort of the outline of the, of the ancient city of Carthage, but it is, has remained gone. There are new villages in the area, but uh, it's, um, it was gone. The Romans later would rebuild a city there, but not on the same scale as ancient Carthage. In, in the midst of all of this, could Abimelech see in this the fulfillment of Jotham's prophecy? Remember Jotham, Jotham the youngest brother, uh, who had escaped the slaughter, had stood on the hill above the city of Mount Gerizim and had proclaimed this prophecy, you know, the, the, the parable of the trees. And it was obvious that Abimelech was the briar there at the end of that. Could, could he see in this the beginning or at least a partial fulfillment of this prophecy? I don't think so. Why? Because this man was self-centered. This man was pagan. This man was committed to violence. People who are focused in on themselves can't see truth if it hits them in the face, usually. And so what this did was leave him wide open to the free action of that evil spirit to work in his life, to completely blind him and to guide him the way the spirit wanted him to go, as it had done to the Shechemites. What we have here is an example of a man who is rushing headlong, oblivious, into disaster. We read from the 14th proverb, Proverbs 14, beginning at verse 7. Proverbs 14, verse 7. Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern words of knowledge. I mean, it catches, it, it, it rubs off. If you're with a fool too much, pretty soon you can't see truth either. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of, a f of fools is deceit. Fools mock at sin. I mean, does that sound like something you've heard in this country in the last few decades, maybe? Oh, it's not sin. What is sin? Whatever's right in your own eyes, do it. But among the upright, there is goodwill. The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I think that is the example of Abimelech. Abimelech is a fulfillment of these numerous passages scattered through Scripture which teach us these truths, as we read in Galatians, as we read here 
in Proverbs. One of the things we also discover about the way the Hebrews thought and the way the Hebrews write is the fact that in these verses here, going back, let's say, to uh, verse 43, it tells there that uh, when he looked and saw the people coming out of the city, he arose against them and slew them, right? And then it sounds like in the next verse that he slew them again. You know, verse 44, then Abimelech and the company dashed forward. And of course, what we understand here is that verse 44 is simply explaining more fully how verse 43 was carried out. Well, we also need to see here now that as we look at verses 46 through 49, that 46 through 49 have to be put back into the previous context. They don't come subsequently to it. Because he is, in verse 45, he's flattened the city and sowed it with salt. I mean, it's gone. <laughs> you know, there's no city. And yet, verse 46 talks about the tower and the temple and all this other thing. Well, obviously, 46 goes back into verse 45 as part of that first phrase. So let's read verse 46 to 49. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, they entered the inner chamber of the temple of El Bareth. And it was told Abimelech that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. Hmm, how convenient. So Abimelech went up to Mount Salmon, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a branch from the trees and lifted it up and laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do likewise. And all the people also cut down, each one his branch, and followed Abimelech, and put them on the inner chamber, and set the inner chamber on fire over those inside, so that all the men of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. In that uh, 46th verse, when it says there, uh, when all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, what, what is it? Well, it has to go back to the murder, the killing of the people in the fields and the capturing of the gate of the city and the beginning of the house-to-house -house search. When they heard that, they, they, they fled to the tower of Shechem. This is the castle, the donjon, the keep. Whatever term you want to use out of medieval uh, warfare, it's, it's, it's the stronghold of the city. It's what the Acropolis was to Athens besides being a place of uh, religious worship. The scripture in previous passages talked about Beth Milo. Um, Beth Milo uh, means the house of the tower. And so this is Beth Milo. This is the tower here. Uh, the word Milo is used often in scripture to refer to towers. And there was even a, a Milo in, uh, in Jerusalem that was David's tower. And of course, if you go to Jerusalem today, there still is a place called David's Tower. But of course, it's a much later construction than the days of David. The... Um, castle of the city, of course, was the place of last defense. If your city, if those walls are breached, you flee into the last uh, place of defense. And it was, usually was made taller and, and less uh, easy to attack. Uh, depending on the style of, of the day, it could be square or rectangular, it could be round. Actually, round ones were harder to capture than were square ones because it's hard to get a, <laughs> any kind of a purchase on a round wall, you know. Your battering ram bounces off if you try to use that particular choice. The physical layout of this passage is really quite unclear uh, here. It, it seems that either within or adjacent to the tower was the temple of what is called in this particular passage, El Bereth. El Bereth is the same as Baal Bereth. 
the word El is the generic word for God. And so it's just talking about the God of the covenant in this case, but it is the same as Baal because Baal simply means Lord or Prince. So you can see, you know, God, Lord, we use the words interchangeably. And so uh, we're talking about the same God referred to earlier in uh, the ninth chapter. If the temple was outside the tower, which most likely it was, why did the people go from the tower to the temple? The tower is supposed to be where you defend yourself and, and you fight and, and you hold out and hopefully the enemy will give up and go away before the tower collapses or is captured. Why would they go to the temple, which is probably less defendable? Well, the answer seems to be that they hoped that El Bereth would save them. They're putting their faith in their God. I mean, you might as well put your money where your mouth is, we, 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 so we speak, don't we? If you really believe in this God, well, believe in this God. Do, do we really believe in our God? Do we live by faith or, or do we live by our own ingenuity? It's a forlorn hope, however. It's a forlorn hope because the Lord said through Isaiah, they have no, no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save them. Pray to a God who cannot save them. We live in a world in which billions of people are praying to gods who cannot save them. I mean, it's really tragic. That's one of the reasons why we as Christians are looked upon as narrow-minded bigots. <coughs> Because we think we have the way, and everybody else is wrong. That Allah is not really God. You know that the that the philosophical way of Buddha isn't a good way to go. You know that you really are going to just become a drop in the eternal sea someday, losing your personality or your personhood and becoming a part of the great world spirit, as the Hindus and the Buddhists believe. You know, Nirvana. How do you know that's not right? Uh, have you noticed how many of the Rather famous people today are going off into that kind of stuff, you know, into the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama has really caught on here in America. And a lot of Christians are thinking, hey, the Dalai Lama's got God good things to say. It was an amazing article in Christianity Today. I didn't get to read all of it, but lots of, quote, Christians are, are thinking the Dalai Lama's right on. Because, you know, it's, um, it's a sense of just doing what is right within your own sense of consciousness. Being a good guy, being a good lady, not worrying about personal salvation because who really needs salvation from what? Well, that isn't the greatest lie of the millennium. <laughs> and pray to a God who cannot save. And it was just exactly what they were doing there. Well, Abimelech, what does Abimelech do? He was told, hey, all these guys are gathered here. Whoa, all in one spot, huh? I don't think he had a thousand people. We didn't need a thousand people for what he was about to do. He decided not to risk anybody in an attack. Why should I attack this temple? It's got a, probably had a wooden roof, so hey, I got a better idea. As he goes up to the nearest hill, now it's called Mount Zalman, but there is no other reference in Scripture except one in, in the Psalms to Mount Zalman, which is a very oblique reference. So there is no known Mount Zalman so, you know, as a separate mountain. So most likely it refers to a ridge on Mount Gerizim, probably where they went up. It was very common. We do it today. Uh, one mountain often has several names to its different peaks and parts. So that's probably what we're talking about here. So they went up on the ridge of Mount Gerizim, possibly Ebal, which is right adjacent to the north. 
wherever it was, it couldn't have been far because he went up there and chopped down some branches and carried it back. Now, he's not going to go 300 miles, you know, or even 30 miles to cut down some branches. Didn't need to because those mountains were wooded in those days. And he said, what you see me do, you do. Go up there and hack off. I don't think it's a little twig, you know, hawks off a big branch and hauls this thing on down and all of his men do the same thing and they, they bring all this wood down and stack it against the temple, around the outside, on the roof, however all they did it. The details are not given here, but they lit it and it became one giant suttee, one giant barbecue of all the people inside. A thousand men and women were killed in the fire. Notice how closely this follows Jotham's prophecy. Back in verse 20 of the ninth chapter, Jotham, after saying or challenging Abimelech and the Shechemites to see if they were doing things, you know, in a, in a proper manner, he said, but if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. Almost exactly so. He burns the tower in the temple and the remainder of the population goes up in smoke. Let's read the last passage of the chapter. Abimelech's not done. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and camped against Thebes and captured it. There was a strong tower in the center of the city, and all the men and women with all their leaders, with all the leaders of the city fled there and shut themselves in, and they went up on the roof of the tower. So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. Then he called quickly to, a, to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest it be said of me, a woman slew me. So the young man pierced him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, each departed to his home. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his seventy brothers. Also God returned all the wickedness of the men of Shechem upon their heads, and the curse of Jotham, the son of, Zerub, of Jerubbabel, came upon them. It, it's obvious here that the crushing of the rebellion at Shechem did not quell the sense of revolt against Abimelech. The people at Thebes didn't see that as, whoa, that'll happen to us too. They rebelled against him anyway. The question is, where in the world was Thebes? Well, the best guess is that it was the city that was later known as Tirzah. And Tirzah is located, if you're looking at the map, and here's Shechem, and here's Ebal, and here's Gerizim, you kind of go up to the northeast towards the Sea of Galilee, and about six miles away from Shechem is the site of what is later known as Tirzah. And this is probably Thebes that is referred to here. Initially, everything went just exactly as it had done at Shechem. He, he attacks the city. He captures the outer city. The people are fleeing. He's going through the streets. They all run into the citadel. Well, firework last time, firework again, right? Uh, in this case, of course, he, the, the entranceway into the tower was probably a heavy wooden door, so he's going to burn this heavy wooden door. So he's bringing all this flammable stuff up against the door, <laughs> going to set the door on fire. Well, Abimelech is not the kind of general who stood at the back and told his men what to do. He showed his men what to do, right? He went up on the mountain, cut down a branch, said, you saw me do this, you do it. And so he's going up there and he's bringing all the flammables. Now these people are on the roof of the tower, looking down. And they know what he's going to do. They're not going to just say, well, that's too bad. I guess we're going to get killed. <laughs> you know, it's like when Alexander the Great built the mole, the um, causeway, 
out to the city, city of Tyre when he was laying siege to it. Did the people in Tyre just say, oh, thank goodness, he's building a causeway out to get to our city. We better you know, pray to our God. Well, I'm sure they did that too. But they threw everything in the city at him. They probably even threw some of the statues of their gods at him, you know, to try to keep him from completing that mole, at that causeway out to the city. Well, one woman, obviously a woman with good aim, <laughs> leaned out over the rampart and said, bombs away. <laughs> and hit him right smack on the head with an upper millstone. I don't know what she was doing up there with an upper millstone, but I suppose they carried all kinds of heavy things inside there because they knew they were going to have to throw it down at these guys besieging the tower. Upper millstone is a stone about yay big. It's a hand mill. We're talking about a hand mill, right? We're not talking about the big mills. A hand mill that they would, every home would have so for just crushing local grain for, to make your, what should we call them, your tacos for the day, <laughs> your pita bread. It's, it's a stone about so big around about yay thick has a handle in it where you go like this over the larger lower stone and you grind your grain that way. Well, the upper stone is movable, so she took the thing off. Or they may have had a stack of them inside, I don't know. Did she think, well, I better take my millstone with me while I go up to the tower here, I, we don't know. But she had one. She dropped it on his head. Well, you know, you drop a stone. I, I, I didn't stop to think or to try to figure out how much a stone 10 or so inches in diameter, two, three inches thick would weigh. But it weighs more than an ounce or two. And you drop that from 30 or 40 feet up, like a brick, it's going to do some damage. It didn't matter if the guy had a helmet on or not. It's going to do a lot of damage. And Abimelech knew the wound was mortal. He knew he was not going to survive. He had enough brain power left, even after having his head smashed, to know that he wasn't going to live. And so he asked his armor bearer to run him through. He did not want to face the humiliation of having been killed by a woman. Now, of course, in our day, <laughs> where guns are prevalent and a woman can kill a man as easily as a man can kill a woman, when, when you have things like this, why, of course, we look at that and say, what's the big deal? <laughs> yeah, put yourself back then. It's like the old rabbi was praying the prayer. You know, I'm glad I was not born a dog or a donkey or a woman, you know, kind of putting them all in the same category here. Women were not thought highly of in the society. And it was very humiliating for a warrior, a mighty warrior, to be killed by a woman. It's kind of like, it's the utter disgrace that could happen to you. Remember what happened to, uh, oh, what's his name? Got his peg through the temple. That was a very humiliating thing for him. I mean, he didn't know it, but <laughs> everybody else knew it. And that was the point. You know, it's like, it's like they were concerned about what they would be thought about after they're dead. But the passage makes it very clear. This was God's judgment. This was God's judgment. And because what is said there at the end of the ninth chapter, we can see that Jotham's curse was from God. It, that Jotham's curse was, was inspired by God. The 70 brothers who had been killed, their blood was avenged. The destruction of Shechem, and the fulfillment of Jotham's curse, all was God's doing. What this chapter illustrates is the incredible folly of those who flagrantly violate God's law. Judgment doesn't always come quickly, as it did upon the, hand, uh, upon the life of Abimelech. 
There are some people who live their whole lives and they die and, and they die supposedly in their sleep, you know, older, old age. Look at Joseph Stalin. Look at uh, Mao Zedong. You know, they all got to be septuagenarians at least before they died. Mao was closer to be an octogenarian when he died and it could be said, well, they didn't face judgment in their life. Well, maybe not. But the judgment that comes is far worse. The judgment after death is far worse because it's eternal. And so I think this, this whole passage is a powerful warning to our society today because this is where we are. We're in the book of Judges. Every man does right in his own eyes. And if it were not for the church in America today, this country, I think, would be headed for the same way Hitler's Germany went, to utter disaster. Probably, however, without the chance to revive that Germany had after the war with the Marshall Plan and all of those things. So anyway, uh, we're going to move on now into the 10th chapter, not today, but uh, in January when we all come back. We'll look at a couple of short-term judges and through that chapter, and then we'll go to the uh, often misunderstood uh, judge by the name of Jephthah.